Today we have a very special podcast for you. Economic Policy Program Director Brendan Coates recently gave the annual Henry George Lecture for Prosper Australia. In this talk dubbed The Great Australian Nightmare, he shows how expensive housing sits at the heart of some of Australia's most pressing policy challenges. We hope you find this an informative discussion of Australia's housing crisis. So tonight I'll be speaking, I'm speaking on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I look, I know I'd like to acknowledge them and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The traditional owners of the lands that we now call Australia understood better than any of us the importance of land in a society. Before European settlement, the reciprocal relationship between people and land underpinned all the other aspects of life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That connection to land remains fundamental today to their health, to relationships, their culture and identity. identity. And it's why I hope they will soon see uh, constitutional reforms to empower Indigenous Australians to, in the words of the Uluru Statement of the Heart, take their rightful place in what has always been their country. I was delighted tonight to be invited to give the 131st annual Henry George commemorative lecture tonight. It does make you feel like you're part of history. Thank you to Prosper for the invitation to do so. I've worked closely with Prosper to support effective tax policies, such as Victoria's recent windfall gains tax on property rezonings. And I think Prosper pays a really unique role in Australian public life in reminding Australians of the importance of land and economic rents and, more gener- and economic rents more generally in Australia's economy and society. Tonight, I also want to talk about land and the way rising house and land values sit at the heart of some of Australia's most pressing policy challenges. One man who did understand the economic value of land was Henry George, whose life and work we are here to honour tonight. Henry George is best known for his advocacy of a single tax on the unimproved value of all privately held land. But one of the key messages from tonight is that Australia would have done well, possibly much better than we, would, than we have done, if we had heeded the lessons of Henry George and paid more attention to the economics of land. Because upstream from the great Australian nightmare of worsening housing affordability, and all the downstream consequences it's creating for our society sit our long-standing neglect of the economics of land. How economists came to ignore land. Economists' interest in land has waxed and waned over time. For the political economists of the 18th and 19th centuries, it was central to our understanding of the world. They believed that the distribution of rents from land ownership could explain the yawning gaps between the rich and poor, among many other uh, ills. The very first economists, the physiocrats, thought of almost nothing else. Land was fundamental. Agricultural labourers were the source of economic growth, while landlords simply commandeered their product and floated through to the rest of the economy. The next generation of classical economists broadened their focus to the complex interactions of land, capital and labour. Adam Smith argued that the division of labour and technological progress drove growth, but land was still central. David Ricardo argued that landlords are simply the lucky beneficiaries of land's natural scarcity and productive capacity, while Thomas Malthus famously, albeit erroneously, thought that land's inherent scarcity put an immovable constraint on economic progress, while Henry George, the often thought as the last classical economist and the thinker we are here to pay tribute to tonight, argued that the rents enjoyed by landlords must be socialised by, by taxing land values. Then in the 20th century, neoclassical economists changed tack. Robert Soller's landmark theory of economic growth posited that it was improvements in the efficiency of how capital and labour combined that drove living standards. Land was not a distinct feature of the model. 
The land, the role of land in production inequality disappeared from the theories economists devised to explain the world. Instead, land is treated just like any other form of capital and the windfall gains that naturally accrue to landowners in a growing economy, generally referred to as land rents, have been allowed to grow. The neglect of the economics of land in, economic, in, in recent decades has left us poorly placed to deal with some of the challenges arising from rapidly increasing land values today, an issue I'll return to shortly. Now, in many ways, the shifting focus of land in the history of economic thought reflects the changing nature of the economies that economists were trying to explain. The physiocrats observed a world dominated by agriculture, here on the far left, where it would have been self-evident that the ownership and use of land determined what got produced, in what quantities, and who got it. Classical economists watching the world transition through the Industrial Revolution and neoclassical economists developed theories for a world that had transitioned. Economic power started to gravitate towards those who own capital and away from those who own land. For most of the 20th century, the neglect of land was of little consequence. For economies powered by manufacturing, who owned land, where it was and how it was used, was of secondary importance to the amount of capital invested and the pace of technological innovation. But as advanced economies of the world have transitioned again from manufacturing to services, land is back. Economies powered by intangible capital strive or stagnate based on the ability of individuals to come together and combine their knowledge and skills. It is, as any real estate agent would tell you, all about location, location, location. Grattan Institute work done by Jane Francis Kelly, who is with us in the audience tonight, shows that cities are, with, are the economic engines of the modern economy. Fully 80% of the value of goods and services produced in Australia are generated in just 0.2% of the land. Economic activity is concentrated here in the CBDs. This is an example here of Melbourne. At, with those of Sydney and Melbourne accounting for 10% of all economic activity in Australia, more than three times the contribution of the entire agricultural sector. This contribution reflects the rise in knowledge-intensive services clustered together at the hearts of our cities. The fact that businesses are willing to pay such high rents to locate in the CBDs of our major cities shows the value of having access to those high-skilled workers and proximity to suppliers, customers and partners in those scarce locations. And the willingness of Australian workers to pay much higher house prices reflects the fact that they value those locations as well. Now, of course, the experience of COVID has reversed this trend a little. We've learned that remote work isn't that bad. We've all learned how to use Zoom, although perhaps many of us still struggle with Microsoft Teams. <laughs> Patterns of settlement and work have shifted a little as people move further away from the CBDs of our major cities to make use of the opportunities to work from home to work from the beach or really to work from wherever they want, whether including Armidale. But even this process has limits. Most knowledge businesses appear to have settled on a form of hybrid work. And that means that land towards the centre of cities remains scarce and it still remains valuable. A nation of millionaires. In the past few decades, house prices have skyrocketed. While average full-time earnings have doubled over the past half century, house prices have quadrupled. Today, the rising value of land, mostly in the form of housing, has turned Australia into a nation of millionaires. The total value of housing now totals nearly $10 trillion out of total household wealth of $15 trillion. The average net worth of Australian households was just over a million dollars in 2019-20. Fully one quarter of homeowning households report net wealth exceeding a million dollars, with the typical homeowner reporting wealth in housing of just over half a million dollars. 
So rising asset prices over the past two years are now starting to decline. To reverse means this figure is almost certainly higher today. These huge increases in house prices relative to incomes in advanced economies have mainly been driven by rising land values, which account for roughly 80% of the growth in prices since the 1950s. Now think about your house, if you own one. Your shelter, the place you return to, I'm sure you've spent some time on maintenance and upkeep, but unless you are featured in the next season of Grand Designs, I'm guessing you spent substantially less time on it than in your job. Yet economists Josh Ryan Collins and Cameron Murray estimate that prior to June 2019, in 16 of the previous 29 quarters, the median Sydney house earned more than the median full-time worker. How can, that be in a, in a, how can we be in a world where a relatively low risk, low effort investment can offer people much greater year work returns than a year of hard work. And here we see how the fact that land was neglected in public discourse for so long has proven so costly as the Australian public via their governments have been among the smallest beneficiaries. Australian governments derive far less revenue from property taxes as a share of GDP than they should. At less than 1% of GDP, it is far below some comparable countries. But at the same time, no country has succeeded in collecting a large share of land rents via land taxes, as Henry George demanded. Land taxes have in fact proved to be unpopular because they are highly salient, hitting the cash flows of households and businesses each year. Whereas stamp duties, despite having much greater economic costs and being universally or almost universally denounced by economists, um, have proven to be far more palatable with the public. Many countries were also lucky enough to capture a larger share of the rapid rise in land rents in recent decades because they owned or happened to own a lot of the land. But in contrast in Australia, Australian governments own just 6% of the total land value in Australia today. And that has fallen from more than 10% going back over the last three decades. This means that these growing returns to housing, to land, are captured privately and our governments are limited in their ability to share these spoils with those that don't own housing and land in ways that other countries have done, whether it be Singapore, Finland, or elsewhere. The drivers of rising house and land values, but what has driven the enormous rise in house values since Second World War? It is a story of historically lower interest rates, increased access to finance, tax and welfare settings that favor investments in housing, and a boom in migration that has all coincided to lead to a chronic shortage of housing. Housing is something that we live in and also something that we own. It's something we borrow to buy, which is why it's no surprise that record low interest rates have been the strongest driver of house prices, of rising prices in recent years. And as interest rates have fallen dramatically in Australia and around the world, that's led to people being comfortable borrowing more and banks being more comfortable lending it to them. Everyone shows up the auction, at the auction with more firepower. Our experience of COVID reinforces this lesson. House prices soared by more than 20% nationwide, even as Australia's international borders remained closed. The post-2005 surge in migration has also had an impact. It's mean that we've had dramatically more Australians than what we first expected needing housing. In fact, the Reserve Bank researchers have estimated that high migration in the first decade of this century meant that housing rents and therefore also prices are roughly 9% higher by the late 2010s than what they otherwise would have been if prices, if migration had stayed at 2005 levels. So housing demand from extra migration 
from higher interest from lower interest rates shouldn't necessarily lead to higher prices if enough dwellings are built quickly and at low costs. So past episodes of housing demand did not see such rapid increases in prices. Rapid population growth in the 1950s matched by record rates of, was matched by record rates of home building. House prices barely moved. Similarly, post the post-war expansion of mortgage credit in the United States led to more houses but not necessarily higher house prices. But housing construction has not kept up in recent years with that rising demand. Heading into the pandemic, Australia had just over 400 dwellings per thousand people, which is among the least housing stock for adult in the developed world. Australia also experienced the second greatest decline in housing stock that you can see here per adult age 20 out of any country since 1990. And it's no coincidence we've also seen some of the highest rising prices. Much of Australia's unmet housing demand is hidden by the fact that it's forcing people to live in larger households than they otherwise would. So this is showing house average household size over time. And between 1966 and 1996, the typical number of people in a household in Australia fell from 3.5 to 2.6 as couples had fewer children. However, declines in average household size have stalled since the late 1990s, while some of these trends, like rates of divorce and an ageing population in particular, have not. Younger Australians are starting households later, and this is the most, most pronounced in the cities where housing is most expensive. Nor, in my view, is there is the idea of a housing shortage contradicted by the existence of more than 1 million vacant dwellings, as recorded by the census, or by Prosper's work tracking vacant dwellings using data on, on water usage? Some states have sought to introduce vacant property taxes to encourage more vacant dwellings onto the market, but to date, no vacant property tax has been successful, since they inevitably include exemptions for uses such as holiday homes that make them easy to gain. But what impact has COVID had since we've closed our international borders for two years? Australia's population growth certainly fell sharply, and that meant that over 200,000 households that otherwise would have needed a home didn't come. But that pause did not free up much in the way of housing stock, because with many people free, feeling the need for more living space during the pandemic to work from home, I used to spend my time working from, from my bedroom. Thankfully, I now do not. That has meant that essentially we've offset that housing demand. And we're in a world today where the Reserve Bank estimates that of those 200,000 households that would have been needed, or that would have needed homes that didn't come due to migration, 140,000 of them have been eaten up by the fact that each of us want more space and therefore average household size has fallen. We're in a world today where, where advertised rents are surging and many of Australia's most vulnerable are suffering as a result. Less than 1% of rental properties in Australia are vacant which is why rents in some areas are rising by up to 14% per year. And the regions are not immune either, where that's actually seen some of the largest rent increases and some of the, the most horrific stories of homelessness. And now that borders have reopened, population growth and housing demand is expected to rebound sharply. This is largely a failure of housing policy, not just housing markets. Australia's land use planning rules are highly prescriptive and complex. The prices of new homes, including apartments, vastly exceed the cost of building more of them. Reserve Bank research has estimated that restrictive land use planning rules added up to 40% to the price of houses in Sydney and Melbourne. More recent research says that planning rules have added substantially to the cost of apartments, 
where building height limits in and around the urban cores of our major cities prevent more construction. Now, there are reasons to think that these estimates are on the upper bound side of the impact of land use planning on prices. But they are consistent with a growing international literature highlighting how land use planning rules, including zoning, other regulations and lengthy development approval processes have reduced the ability of many housing markets to respond to growing demand. In many of these studies, we see a clear correlation, particularly in the US, between the size of land rents and decent measures of land use planning stringency. The key problem here is that many state and territory governments and local governments restrict medium and high density developments to appease local residents concerned about road congestion, about parking and damage to neighbourhood character. The politics are of what gets built and where favour those that avoid change, that oppose change, because the people who might live in new housing, were it to be built, don't get to have a say. That is not to say that considerations of land use planning are not without merit. Land use planning rules set out how competing land uses are to be managed to minimise the externality costs produced by some land uses, such as pollution, noise, congestion, and we need those rules. They ensure that we don't build an apartment building next to an abattoir or next to a school. But studies assessing the costs of local costs and of local costs and benefits of current rules generally conclude that the negative externalities are much smaller than the costs of existing regulations. More recent work by Prosper and others has shown that land development is prone to cycles of strategic behaviour in greenfield areas. The issue of land banking by developers warrants further investigation, but it does not, in my view, imply that there is a natural speed limit on development independent of external constraints on housing supply. There are many players in the land development market, especially for the urban infill in our major cities that now accounts for more than half of new development. If developers are land banking, on the urban fringe, as they may well be, that constru housing construction should be offset by more construction in infill areas if land use planning rules would permit it. Yet it remains clear cities offer too little medium density housing in their inner and middle ring suburbs. Australian capital cities are more sparsely populated than cities of similar size in other developed countries. This is not what most Australians want. It is a myth that most first time buyers want the quarter acre block. Many would prefer a townhouse, a semi-detached dwelling, an apartment in an inner or middle ring suburb than a house on the urban fringe. So the stock of smaller dwellings, those townhouses and apartments, made up 33% of Melbourne's housing stock in 2016. Yet as Australians say, they actually want 52% in Melbourne to be living in those kind of locations. The Great Australian Nightmare. Within living memory, Australia was a place where housing costs were manageable and people of all ages and incomes had a reasonable chance to own a home with good access to jobs. But the great Australian dream of home ownership is rapidly turning into a nightmare for many young Australians. People on low incomes, especially renters, are spending more of their income on housing, especially in the form of rent. More than half of low income Australians are in housing stress today, particularly those in our capital cities. And as we get new data, we would expect to see more in regional areas as well. One in five working age households who rent are in financial stress, while the ugliest outcome, homelessness, is on the rise. Since World War II, Australia has been a nation of homeowners. Home ownership rates peaked at 71% in 1966, and three quarters of the nation was on the property ladder and living the dream. 
But now homeownership rates are falling fast, particularly among younger and poorer Australians. Between 1981 and 2021, so 40 years, homeownership rates amongst 25 to 34-year-olds fell by more than, from more than 60% to 40%. And for the poorest 40% of that age group, 25 to 34-year-olds, they've halved from 57% to 28%. Since the last census, we've started to see declining home ownership rates amongst middle-income households too, with noticeable falls in home ownership at all ages and including older, middle-income Australians. So this is showing you the difference in home ownership just from the 2016 to 21 census, broken up between the poorest 20% through to the wealthiest 20% of each one of these age groups. This here, the previous slide, is showing just the sheer size of those falls at the top, amongst poorer Australians and just how much the world has changed from 40 years ago. And this is showing you the change in just the last five years. Home ownership is also falling among older Australians. Among the poorest 40% of 45 to 54 year olds, just 53% own their own home today, down from 71% four decades ago. Now we can blame the avocado brunches young people spending less on discretionary items, recreation, alcohol and tobacco, clothes and personal care, household services and furnishings. But Australian, younger Australians spend less on those things on the right-hand side, oh, sorry, on the right-hand side here, than what their parents did three decades ago. Where they are spending more is they're on the left-hand side. They're spending far more on transport, medical, housing, power and food. And people often mistake this because they see younger people going around with lots of clothes. And the difference is that your clothes probably now cost about a third to a quarter in real terms adjusted for inflation than what the same clothes cost three decades ago. And so a lot of what's going on is people are seeing changes in prices and attributing that to changes in behaviour. Today's younger renters are tomorrow's older retirees. Renting retirees. So I've just missed the slide there. That's all right. Today's younger renters are tomorrow's renting retirees. Australia's retirement income system has historically assumed most retirees would own their own homes outright, and those that didn't would probably end up in public housing. The federal government's retirement income review showed that most homeowners are on track for a comfortable retirement. Mm -hmm. Retirees are less likely than working age Australians to suffer financial stress, such as not being able to pay a bill on time, and more likely to be able to afford to, to pay to afford optional extras like annual holidays. But Australians who rent in retirement are facing an increasingly bleak future. We know that Australians that rent in retirement are far more likely to experience poverty. So this is showing you home poverty rates, so the share of people um, in uh, poverty after housing costs, between owners without a mortgage, owners with a mortgage, the columns of the rent, the tall columns of the renters, and then the totals. And what we see is that half of all retired renters, close to half today, are living in poverty. And those numbers will only grow as future retirees are less likely to own their own homes. Older women are especially vulnerable. Women aged over 55 are the fastest growing group of homeless Australians, even if their numbers today are starting off small. Without change, we risk a generation of older Australians living in poverty, in retirement. 
But also being forced to move or worrying about the possibility of having to move is a particular problem for families. And there are more of them today living in rental accommodation as home ownership falls. That puts a premium on stability of tenure. Yet renters currently have little assurance that they can actually stay in that property, that they can make that house their home. Most tenancy agreements for a fixed term of one year or less, they, then often they convert to periodic leases. Renters move much more than homeowners. Much attention, including some of Grattan's past work, including some of my own, has focused on improving the length of increasing the length of tenancies. But I think the much bigger challenge is actual tenancy laws that provide landlords with too broad a right to terminate leases unilaterally. Another big part of the problem is mum and dad investors. So mum and dad investors, so-called, often make terrible landlords. Just about 85% of the rental properties in Australia are owned by landlords who have three or fewer properties. With such small portfolios, landlords prefer shorter leases and relaxed tenure laws in case the relationship with the tenant turns sour or they want to sell the property. After all, we're talking about someone with an enormous share of their wealth tied up in one or two properties, particularly when they're borrowing for them. And it's an issue we'll return to later. The Jane Austen world. In contrast to much recent public commentary, income inequality is not particularly high in Australia, nor is it getting much worse. But if we consider incomes after accounting for housing costs, broken up between the poorest and the wealthiest 20% of the population, what we see is that incomes after housing costs are becoming much more unequal. And wealth inequality in Australia, while still below the OECD average, has been growing over the past few decades. Home ownership is making that worse because it's the wealthier Australians that are owning property and getting the value of those rising house values. And so we see that the wealth of the poorest 20% of Australians has barely increased in the last 20 years, whereas the wealth on the right of the top 20% has increased by almost 60%. In his 2014 book, Capital in the 21st Century, Thomas Piketty argued that growing wealth inequality is the natural tendency of capitalism. Uninterrupt, interrupted only briefly by two world wars. In fact, the rising share of capital income in Australia, a subject of great debate in the recent Jobs and Skills Summit, is at least partly explained by the rising cost of housing and the land upon which it's built. US economist Matthew Wrongly showed that the, relative, the recent upward trend in the capital share of income in the US is driven largely by scarce housing. Similar analysis for Australia shows that more and more national income is coming from housing. Rents, actual and imputed, used to make up just 2% of the value of national income. Now it accounts for almost 10%. And if we think of the declining share of the labour income in Australia, then roughly one quarter of that can be attributed to the fact that housing rents have increased. So those looking to, share, to restore labour share of income, such a huge focus of the job summit, would do worse than look at the cost of housing. The growing divide between the housing haves and have-nots also risks becoming entrenched as wealth is passed on to the next generation. An increasing share of Australia's wealth is in the hands of the baby boomers and older generations, as you can see here on the right-hand side. So that total wealth of $15 billion, largely concentrated in the hands of older groups, means there's an awfully big pot of wealth to be passed on down the track. Now, big inheritances boost the... Big inheritances boost the jackpot from the birth lottery. Richer parents tend to have richer children. Those who have received an inheritance over the last decade, the wealthiest 20% here on the right-hand side, 
received on average three times as much as those on the left-hand side. And the red bar is showing the median inheritance and the, the orange is showing the average. In fact, one recent study estimates that 10% of all inheritances from the current cohort of retirees will account for half the total value of those bequests. And inheritances are increasingly coming later in life, which means they're not also helping people in younger generations to get their foothold in the housing market because they're arriving in their 50s and 60s because that's when parents are passing away in their 80s and 90s. And so you have to ask what kind of society are we going to be shifting into? I've just got one little bit to go first. Australia is dominated by service industries where flexibility, okay. Expensive and scarce housing also has big economic consequences. Australia is dominated by service industries where flexibility and where workers work and businesses can locate boosts innovation and productivity. Cities tend to be more productive and as reflected in higher wages in GDP and rates of innovation per person, particularly towards the center of those cities. But where businesses can locate is affected by planning rules that guide the availability of both land for businesses and the homes of the people that will work in them. Fewer restrictions on land use would increase economic growth by enabling more people to access more jobs. Some recent US studies have estimated that GDP in the US would be between 2 and 13% higher if enough housing had been built in cities with strong jobs growth, like New York and San Francisco. These effects would be much smaller in Australia. We are talking about five cities where the bulk of the population lives. But it's still potentially a huge effect to our living standards. Long commutes mean it's harder for both parents to work, with women generally the ones who end up working less. Female workforce participation out of suburban areas is roughly 20 percentage points lower than for men. Increasingly important life outcomes, performance in school, employment, even life expectancy are determined by where people live and the quality of the homes they live in. And high household indebtedness also constrains the capacity of younger people to take over the risks to start a business or consider a midlife career change. I suspect we're only starting to see the consequences of high household debts on economic dynamism and risk-taking in our economy. So what I've outlined tonight are a big set of challenges. Rising in land values and the growing gap between those that own them and those that don't are already reshaping Australia in profound ways. But these challenges are not insurmountable. Attempts at progress here have been made and inroads have been successful. And there are also important lessons from overseas. The recently elected Albanese government has pledged to establish a national housing and homelessness plan. And if I could treat this address as a preemptive submission, as well as a reform pitch heading into upcoming state elections in Victoria and New South Wales, I would highlight the following priorities, Henry. First, the most obvious way the federal government can reduce housing demand and prices is by reducing capital gains tax discount and taming negative gearing. The effect on property prices would be modest, they might fall 2%. The economic benefits would be there because the current tax arrangements distort investment decisions and make housing more volatile, housing markets more volatile. Reform would boost the budget bottom line by about $5 billion a year. Contrary to urban myth, rents would not rise, nor would housing markets collapse. Instead, investors would sell those investment properties and first home buyers would buy them. So while the impact of tax reform on house prices might be low, 
the impact on rates of home ownership would be a lot larger. That sounds pretty good to me. Second, housing would be more affordable if we did build more of it. It's the states rather than the federal government that have constitutional responsibilities for land use planning. They set the planning framework and they largely govern local councils that typically in most states assess development, most development applications. But we can, and the federal government should, boost housing supply, particularly when we're a world where we're increasing migration from 160 to 195,000 a year, as announced at the recent Jobs and Skills Summit. So fixing land use planning is politically hard, but it is possible. The federal government should, should help states to do this by paying them for building more housing. There's plenty of precedent. Under the national competition policy, the federal government paid the states nearly $6 billion over 10 years in exchange for much needed regulatory and competition reforms. The Productivity Commission later concluded that the benefits of the policy massively outweighed the costs. So here, the federal government could pay the states for each house built above some baseline. A new federal statutory authority, Housing Australia, could help keep score. A similar approach to that taken under national competition policy could help solve, help solve Australia's housing affordability crisis and boost Australia's lagging productivity growth. Future federal governments will reap the fiscal dividend by higher tax revenues as we end up building more homes close to jobs and generate the economic dividend. And there's no reason as well for those that are skeptical about the land use planning thesis that state governments couldn't just build more housing themselves. We're in a world today where state government developers do actually relatively little. And there are plenty of examples around the world where governments themselves directly build more housing. And I can't see any reason why we shouldn't do that, more of that here in Australia. But public concern about housing development isn't just because of NIMBYism. Anyone who looks around the urban landscape can see the quality of what we build is often not particularly good. And this really matters because developments are one-shot games. Once housing is built, it's there for decades. Down the road from our old home in Preston, there was a large industrial estate. It was zoned for six to eight storeys, which was completely appropriate given where it was, what was around it, and its connection to the transport links. But the, the neighbours and I would have felt much more comfortable about it if we knew that the development was going to be well designed and it was going to be well built. And that's something of which we had very little control. So if local residents can't be confident that development will be well designed, it's perfectly rational that they'll try to oppose it. If they're worried about that now, they will keep the option open for later. So which is the same why at the same time as we relax land use planning rules, we should also strengthen both the building code and the design rules that govern how buildings are built. So the Victorian government is already progressing a form of this initiative via the Future Homes Initiative, something Grattan actually had a hand in designing. Having run an architectural competition to canvas high quality designs for medium density developments, the next step in the process is logically to offer a faster pathway through planning for developers that use those designs. And there's no reason that state governments state developers could not also pick up those designs and use them in the construction of new housing. Local residents also object to more development because they think developers are getting a free kick. And there are times, to be honest, where they, they clearly are. Because rezoning of land generates large unearned windfall gains for landowners. Just think of the bonanzas that have flown, that have, that have arisen out of Fisherman's Bend and out of the Docklands showing that more of the gains from rezoning actually end up in the hands of the community would be an incredible step forward from where we are today. 
which is why any planning reforms that open up more land for development, that allow taller buildings, that allow that to happen, should also be paired with greater use of windfall gains taxes on the land uplift. It's a myth that changes the charges for changes in land use raise house values. Australian evidence suggests that those lucky enough to own land before it's rezoned pay the charges rather than pass them on to some eventual home buyer, which is why developers object. And future developers will pay less for their land because the expectation of windfall gains won't be built into the price. The ACT government has been collecting 75% of the land value uplift for three decades without scaring away developers. And taxing the uplift from property rezonings, a form of monopoly rents arising from planning decisions is one of the most cost efficient, the most economically efficient taxes that we have. But not everyone's going to own their own home. That is a world that we end up, that I think is passed us by in Australia without very radical action. So best of luck to Carl with what he's doing with community land trusts. Maybe you'll change the game. But I think in a lot of respects, we've got to expect home ownership will fall in future decades. It will remain lower in future decades in Australia than what it has been historically. And so more people will be renting for longer. And so we should amend tenancy laws to make renting more attractive. So tenancy laws are supposed to ameliorate some of the unequal bargaining power that landlords have over other tenants. But landlords often have the upper hand in negotiations if the tenant needs to get a roof over their head quickly. The consequences of being homeless for a week are much greater than missing out on one week's rent. So several states have already made some progress here, but much more still needs to be done. Renting could also be removed, improved by removing the barriers to institutional investors to invest in market rent residential housing. Now, those institutional investors, if they are properly regulated, are better placed to offer rent as security of tenure, since the cost of getting a bad tenant at a freight across hundreds, if not thousands of properties. And while mum and dad investors are essentially anonymous, prominent institutional landlords, like the super funds, would have a, have a brand to protect. But currently, land taxes, and this is perhaps heretical in this group to, to, to criticise Australia's progressive land tax regime, they make it uneconomic for large-scale investors. Now, those taxes are obviously set up to break up the squadocracy in Australia in the late 19th century, and they were very effective. But we're in a different world now. And what they're doing is they're preventing larger scale institutions from being able to own housing and rent it out much more efficiently than the mum and dad investors that dominate the market currently. Social housing, where rents are typically capped at 25% of tenants' incomes, can also make a big difference. But social housing, currently capped at 430,000 dwellings, has barely grown in 20 years, while Australia's population has increased by a third. About 6% of housing in Australia was social in 1991. It's now just 4%. Now, the Albanese government's Housing Australia Future Fund will build 30,000 social and affordable housing units. Look, and I'm proud to say that Grattan had quite a lot to do with getting that off the ground. But the last big federal social housing initiative, the $6 billion social housing initiative by the Rudd-Gillard government, which built 20,000 homes, led essentially are in the aftermath to state governments pulling back. And so the priority today is to essentially push the states via the federal government to, to take on more of their role by building more social housing. And so what the federal government should do as part of the rollout of that social housing future fund is require state governments to make matching financial contributions to new social housing as a condition 
of the grants being allocated to their state. And if the state does not agree, then the funds from that future fund, which will be invested, that will then generate the dividend that will build the social housing, to pay for the social housing, they should be redistributed to the other states. We're not going to get action here in Australia unless we're willing to make a hard bargain. But beyond ensuring a flow of additional social housing, we also need to raise rent assistance. Commonwealth rent assistance should be boosted by at least 40%. And it should be indexed to changes in rents typically paid by people receiving income support. This would be a fair way to reduce financial stress and poverty among poorer renters because unlike social housing, everyone who's eligible gets access to it. It's also well targeted. About 80% of rent assistance goes to the poor fifth of households. And one of the values of rent assistance is that as the number of people in need increases, so does the size of the program. So as home ownership has fallen in Australia amongst low-income earners, more Australians have qualified. Total rent assistance has gone from $1.9 billion in 2003 to $5.4 billion last year. So that's after adjusting for inflation, that's a 93% increase in spending on rent assistance or a rate of 3.9% a year after inflation. That's a pretty good outcome if you're interested in putting more money in the hands of people that are otherwise struggling. And I find it hard to imagine that in the absence of rent assistance, we would have seen a similar increase in spending on social housing, which would have gone through the annual budget cycle. Also, there are lots of concerns that raising rent assistance would have the effect of raising rents that it would be passed forward to landlords. But what we tend to find in the studies is that only a small share of it actually gets passed forward to landlords, in part because people are already spending an enormous amount of money on rents, and what they're struggling is having the money to pay for anything else. And so if you raise someone's incomes, in no different a way to which raising job, keeper, job seeker, I should say, you would have the effect of boosting the incomes that people have to do, so they can no longer have to go without some of those essentials. Things like putting food on the table or putting their kids in school. So in Australia, in Australia's past, both low and high income earners, both young and owned, owned homes, homelessness is rare and over the past 40 years, housing in Australia has been transformed. Today, home ownership largely depends on your income and how wealthy your parents are. Housing is contributing to rising gaps in wealth between rich and poor, old and young. Lower income households are spending more of their income on housing and are under more rental stress. But governments have continued both to promise improved housing affordability and to prefer the easy policy options. It is no surprise that trust in government continues to fall. If we really want to make a difference, we will need to explain the hard choices to prepare the ground for the kinds of the decisions that we're going to have to make. This is a problem that we can fix, but only if we make the right choices. Thank you.